If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Ho, 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 we made this. The truth is in here. This is Marlene Stemmy. I'm your host for this discussion about how the ghost stole Christmas, which aired on December 13th, 1998, as the sixth episode of the sixth season of The X-Files. How the Ghost Stole Christmas was written and directed by Chris Carter and features a very interesting, albeit small, cast of characters. Here to talk with me about this haunted Christmas X-File is Paige Schechter. Hi, Paige. How are you? Hi, Marlene. I'm great. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well, too. Thank you. This podcast is going to be our Christmas episode, so let me possibly be the first person this year to wish you a Merry Christmas. <laughs> yes, Merry Christmas to you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Now, I mentioned that Chris Carter wrote and directed How the Ghost Stole Christmas, and this is his second writer-director credit already this year in season six. And I think it's interesting in what is a very different type of season for the X-Files that Chris Carter has two sort of auteur-type episodes right out of the gate within the first third or so of the season. What do you make of the episode in the context of season six, just in general? Well, first of all, at this point, and I remember this from regular run and being on message boards and whatever, People were already referring to this season as X-Files Light, you know, that they were, Mm -hmm. it was not as complex or as dark and deep as as it had been. And obviously, there's no other place this this particular episode could go. But there did seem to be a very light comedic touch to all the ones leading up to this and to some of the ones after it. But if you look, when you look deeper at it, there are a lot of darker themes at play, and, and certainly that's the case here in this one. Yeah. And then the X-Files, of course, didn't really do this kind of standard TV fare of having uh, holiday episodes every year, even though some of the episodes that aired before the Christmas break each year had, I would say to a greater or lesser degree, similarities to Christmas themes or allegories. So what do you think of this as kind of what's come to be the classic X-Files holiday episode? I think what um, what really makes it, of course, is the last scene, which just led mm. countless viewers to spend countless <laughs> hours mulling over what did they give each other. Right. And I'm sure we'll get into this more while we're talking about the episode but I think what it really shows, it, you know, the, the ghosts spend a lot of time trying to convince Mulder and Scully separately that they're feeling bad, they're feeling alone, and 
And what I think the episode really shows is that they don't think that, you know, they know Mm -hmm. the other one is there for them. That's like the Christmas spirit encapsulated. So I think in that sense, it really works for this episode. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that the ghosts, and we'll get into this more, obviously, but I think the ghosts kind of scratch the surface or they hit some features that Mulder and Scully may have, but they don't really get... To the depth of it so that makes a lot of sense to me as well so you've already answered my third question on this was is this a light episode or a dark episode so we've already kind of covered that or you have i think it's you know a lot of the episodes i think in season six were light episodes on top but they had sort of that darkness underneath and i think that this one is just a perfect example of that as well Yes, I definitely I definitely think that. And so it does get a bit of a bad reputation as X-Files light, but there really is a lot more going on. And I think X-Files light especially because there's a lot of bright sunshine and and everything mm. in in a lot of the episodes and this one of course is very dark and ominous and gloomy, which I love. I love all of the kind of like all of the tropes of a haunted house or a mansion and so forth. I love. So that worked really well for me. What's great about it is, you know, we all have these ideas of what a Christmas episode is like, of what a Christmas mm-hmm. episode is supposed to be like. What what show hasn't done a, like, Scrooge Christmas Carol type episode where somebody totally changes the way they were and, you know, becomes a better person for it? And there are so many kind of Halloween episodes with haunted houses and ghosts or whatever, like... But this is so uniquely different and so X-Files. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love it so much. Yeah, I like that. I tend to like that combination as well. Like the Halloween and Christmas kind of melded together. So in that regard, it really, it works well for me. Yeah, it's very nightmare before Christmas, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about the cast, but I wanted to first make a note on the set decoration, something that I read about the the episode that Chris Carter wanted to keep all of the action on a single set. So this led production designer Corey Kaplan to propose that they base it in Scully's apartment. So I thought that was a, that, a really interesting idea. I don't think that it would have really worked, but it made me very, very curious how that would have happened. It said that Carter wanted to keep the haunted house motif and kind of have the bigger house, though. So he set it in a haunted house and then asked Corey Kaplan to design a mansion that was bleak but not too bleak, decrepit but not too decrepit, and deserted but not too deserted. <laughs> Which sounds to me like what we've come to know about Chris Carter's thinking process, kind of in opposites, you know, like this but not too much of that. So I thought that, right. that was an interesting thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now for the cast, we have four people. And I think that you had mentioned something about this as well. Like we both noticed that what a small cast it is. Did you have anything you wanted to say about the the cast, either the casting or just like the the cast itself? Well, like you said, it was the smallest number in the episodes until followers in season 11. I'm not going to try and spit out that string of (laughs) letters and numbers. They had done such a big production on Chris Carter's other episode, Triangle, so you can see how they they might want to be a little more insular and, and... pared down the cast, pared down the costs. And so they have this one episode with only four people in it. And what I love about it is the mixing and matching. You know, mm-hmm. we see we see Lily Tomlin and Ed Asner together and we see 
Gillian Anderson and David Duchovny together. And then it gets all mixed up and, you know, they pair off and we see Mulder with Maurice and we see Scully with Leiter and then we see Mulder with Leiter and and Scully with Maurice and how all those things come into play. And, And we're talking about two very celebrated, decorated actors. I mean, Ed Asner Mm -hmm. has, I think it's seven Emmy Awards, which is the most by an actor. And Lily Tomlin, you know, is a goddess. Right. I think Ed Asner has an award in every major category, television-wise. I could be wrong about that, but I know he's like one of those rare people that's like hit all of the creative categories somehow. So that's definitely interesting. And to think he's he wasn't even their first choice, you know, right, <laughs> that's right. so funny about it. So who was their first choice? Their first choice was somebody, I guess they, they wanted to get on the show a couple of different times. It was Bob Newhart. And yeah. if you think about how this episode might have played out with Bob Newhart, that would have been really interesting as well. But they also wanted Bob Newhart, Darren Morgan wanted Bob Newhart for Clyde Bruckman's final repose and that didn't work out and by not working out that also worked out you know you get Peter Boyle and he wins an Emmy and everything's good so people's there the X-Files second choices have worked out really well (laughs) that's true that is true I think it would have been interesting to see what Bob Newhart would have brought to this part because I can just imagine him from from whoever remembers the Bob Newhart show as that role as the psychologist you know, it just seems like it would have been a more, a little more, they always describe Bob Newhart as buttoned down, so maybe a little bit more subdued performance. But I think what we got worked, and it worked well with Lily Tomlin as the sort of the partner in crime, as it were. I think Lily and Ed play off each other amazing. You know, it's like they've been together for a long, long time. I mean, Jillian and David have been at this for a, for a very long time, but Ed yeah. and Lily just came on the set and they created this. And I believe that Maurice and Lida have been together for all eternity and, and playing these, I was going to say pranks, but, you know, when we're talking about death and murder and suicide, I think it's a little stronger than a prank. But they acted, they seemed like they had been together going through this for a very long time. Yeah, I agree with you. So a brief summary, I'm just going to do this for our listeners from IMDb. And this is very brief. On Christmas Eve, Mulder and Scully find themselves trapped in a haunted house with two ghosts who are determined to prove just how lonely the holiday can be. That's the tagline. So speaking of IMDb, Paige, what do you think the IMDb rating is for How the Ghost Stole Christmas? Well, I know what it is. So. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> or do you know? That was my... <laughs> um, I, I think that was, if I was going to say, is that what I think that IMDb would have, you know, IMDb viewers watchers would have rated it i think it's pretty close to what i would have mm-hmm. guessed it's an 8.4 which yes. I, I think is probably around what i would think too now it's not the lowest in the season but it's certainly not the highest either and i don't know if i was surprised by that or not but it looked like it was around the middle of the ratings for season six according to imdb i think that this episode is one in which fans are really like it or really don't like it, there's not a lot of middle ground on that. Yeah. And part of that is from a theory that I have culled over many years. Oh, interesting. (laughs) What is the difference between a great episode and what you would consider a favorite episode? You know, what is... Mm -hmm. And and when it comes to X-Files quality, you know, 
you can't compare this with an Anasazi. You can't compare those two things. It's, you know, apples and oranges. It's, this is, on the face of it, a comedy episode that has a lot more going on for it. And Anasazi is a mythology episode. So right. I think that's where you get a lot of different viewpoints. And I'm sure later in Mailbag, we'll see a wide range of that. What would you, either for, you could, it could be for favorite or likability or quality, but what would your rating for the episode be on the scale of one to ten? I, for me, it's a nine. Um, it's an okay. episode that I've seen more than most of them and more than the majority of them. I've watched this again and again, and not just at Christmas time or not just at Halloween. I just enjoy, and I know it has its flaws. It's not a perfect episode, but I really enjoy the characters, both our heroes and the ghosts and where it takes them. Yeah. It's true that some things change as we get older, but if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts, offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. I would say right now mine is an eight point five, but I, it's it's gone as high as a nine. I think it started really low. I told you that when I first saw it, and I saw it when it first came on. I can still remember it, and I liked that it was a Christmas, a haunted Christmas episode. I really liked that idea, but I just thought it was so silly and ridiculous. And that's really how I thought about a lot of season six at the time that it was on. And I think especially coming off of Dreamland, the Dreamlands and some of those other episodes, it just seemed like more silliness. And then some of their behaviors are very over-the-top and outlandish. And then over time, I grew to appreciate it a little bit more and appreciate based on what came later and some of the things about what Mulder and Scully had been going through and just their history and so forth. And so I appreciated it, but I couldn't say that I loved it. And then I went through this period of time several years ago where I was just fascinated with it. And I watched it all all the time, like several times a week at least. That's not really all the time, but, you know, as often as I was able to watch something, I was watching this episode over and over. And I feel like I got a lot more out of it. And every scene, I would notice something new. And then for a while, it kind of calmed down. I was like, maybe it was not that great. (laughs) I went back to, not quite to my original assessment, but to appreciating it, but not loving it. 
And then as I've been watching it for our conversation, it kind of came up again and I started to enjoy it again. So it's one of the few, I would say, that just wildly fluctuates across my lifetime, across the last, what has it been, like 20 years, a little over 20 years, 21 years maybe. So right now for me, it's an eight and a half, but that is my, my viewing history of it. So wait, I have a question too. So talking about your fluctuations and whatnot, do you have that happen on a regular basis with X-Files episodes in general, or is this sort of something that happens that doesn't usually happen? It doesn't usually happen with a particular episode to this degree at all, and not the back and forth. There's several that I liked a lot, and then I watch them again now, and I've watched them consistently. I never stopped watching this show, so I don't really feel like I have a period of time where it went away and then came back or anything like that, but I think that there are episodes that I liked a lot, and then now I'm like, oh, it's not one of my favorites, or I don't like it quite as much. And then more often, I'll have episodes that I didn't love initially, and then I'll just start to notice more and more in them, or maybe more how they're connected to other episodes or to what's going on with Mulder and Scully at a certain time, that type of thing. But this is, it's the only one I can think of right now that has just gone up and down, like all, you know, just been all over the place in terms of my, both my enjoyment of it and my, I guess, intellectual appreciation of it, if you could say that. I think Arcadia is one that I found amusing at first, and there was a period of time when I really liked that and liked watching it all of the time, but I never had... I don't mean this in a negative way necessarily, but I never had a very strong appreciation for it. I didn't think it was brilliant. I just really thought it was fun. And then I wasn't in the mood for it anymore. But that wasn't as big a fluctuation, in my opinion, mm-hmm. of the episode as this one. I I feel yeah. the same way about Arcadia. I really used to like it, and now I just have no use for it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I would say a lot of the ones that have any aspect of that dynamic to me are ones that have like either like a silly edge to it that I appreciate it sometimes more than others or ones that are more like this, which is more about Mulder and per- Scully's personal dynamic rather than their working dynamic. Mm-hmm. And I think I prefer the working dynamic to be more at the forefront. So right, that's part of it. If you're ready, we can go ahead into the episode and sort of go through. It's really kind of a series of conversations, so we can go through and just kind of see the things that we notice about them and what you think. Sure. Okay. So when we start, and again, this is like the classic, you know, I mean, it would be like a Halloween or almost like Clue or something, you know, some sort of like classic haunted mansion in the background, which I absolutely love. But the tagline has Christmas Eve somewhere in Maryland. And then we see Mulder in his car and I believe he's eating sunflower seeds at that moment. Yep. And then, and I would say, and I was thinking about this just the other day when I was watching it, that I kind of associate Mulder eating sunflower seeds with his solitude. So that was one thing that I thought was a nice touch in that early car scene of him waiting for Scully. Oh, yeah. that's. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I like that. Yeah. And so Scully shows up. She's grumpy from her shopping venture. She's not really in a Christmassy spirit, and she's really, though, using her, you know, supposed Christmas activities to beg out of listening to Mulder. And she's also lying, because we can see the wrapped Christmas presents in the backseat of her car, and she (laughs) says that she has wrapping to do. So she's telling him that. She's resisting. And Mulder's kind of despondent and whiny, so Scully capitulates and gets in his car and listens to his haunted house story. I like this story. I like the way Mulder tells it. 
and how he's obviously practiced it to tell her this story. And it's <laughs> Christmas 1917. It was a time of dark, dark despair. And he goes through the situation of World War One, and then the deadly flu virus. And then he ends with it was a time of dark, dark despair, which I loved. I love how enthusiastic he is about that, you know, the, the darkness of his, his story he's telling her. And then he goes into the story of Maurice and Lyda and the tra- their tragedy. And he's kind of building anticipation as he goes. And as he's telling this story, it, the camera kind of, from like one part of the scene, pulls out and is behind them, behind the car seats. And you have Mulder and Scully kind of on opposite sides of the screen. And I really, that's one thing I've always loved is that view of them, almost like they're just telling stories together. I think that, that and it's only their faces that are lit that you can see. So that's something that I really liked. I don't know if you noticed anything in that that you really appreciated, but I thought that was a good touch. Yeah, I do like it. I I do like that image because it's it sort of sets up the way the whole X Files runs. You know, Mulder believes Scully doesn't believe, and he's mm-hmm. on this side and she's on this side. Yeah, that's great. And then Mulder is saying that Maurice was a brooding yet heroic young man, and that Lido was a sublime beauty. And the line that that gets me is they were likened to two angels descended from heaven, whom the gods could not protect from the horrors being visited upon this cold gray earth. And I really think that this is representing what Chris Carter sees as his ideal of Mulder and Scully, you know, in the midst of this story. Absolutely. Definitely. Definitely. Did you have any other thoughts about that, about that kind of parallelism? Because I think it starts early on. I think, yeah, I think right from the get-go and and probably why Mulder's interest in this house, in this case, well, not Mm -hmm. officially a case, but in this story is because he also is seeing them in them yeah and then he describes how they formed a lover's pact so they could spend eternity together and she guesses correctly that they killed themselves she says it's a good story but she doesn't believe it and then Mulder for some reason is surprised that she does not believe in ghosts (laughs) so like Mulder after all these years already is surprised she doesn't believe something yeah I find I find that a little bit awkward it's like this hasn't come up before he should know first of all he should know what her stance on ghosts is but second of all scully come on you know skulls um you know (laughs) beyond the sea elegy christmas carol you we've been there with we know you know maybe you've talked yourself out of each and every one of them but we've been there right that's a great point and I think that in the monologue in her next scene, after we get past the teaser, she's, you know, all of that that she's going on about and spewing sort of flies in the face of her own experience, which is interesting. But basically where we are right now is Scully is protesting. Mulder is kind of seeming forlorn. And then and she says, don't you have somewhere else to be? And it's kind of, there's a sadness, but Scully of Mulder, but then Scully is kind of thinly veiling that she's not that interested in the plans that she has. And then she says, I'm not going to do it. It's my New Year's resolution. And it just sounded to me like she's following some rule that she's set for herself that she doesn't really want to follow in the first place, which I could see that for Scully. And it's not even New Year's yet. Right. right. <laughs> you can break the resolution. It hasn't started it hasn't yet. Happened. Right. And if it was for the previous year, she's certainly not followed it. So she might as well give up. True. Yeah. So she's looking for her keys. Can't find them in Mulder's car. Can't find them in her car. Meanwhile, Mulder has gone into the house and Scully follows him in there. It's open. They can get in and all of this. And they're hearing all the classic creepy sounds as they go in. The thuds upstairs. 
the clock chiming and the wind. And so Scully starts her rationalization. There must be an open window upstairs, and she's going on about the weather report and how there might even be a white Christmas. Mulder's not listening. And then the front door slams shut, and they run to the door, or Scully runs to the door, and they can't get out, and they're locked in the house. So I really love the teaser. I love the storytelling and how it sets it up. What did you think of that as an intro to the episode? I think, like like Scully said, you know, he told his tale very well. And like you said, he must have been practicing that because <laughs> he had that down. I mean, oh, it yeah. really is interesting. I would go in the house at that point after hearing that, after yeah. hearing that story. And then... You know, they come in the house and it's it's eerie. And we've got some of this Mark Snow music, and really from the beginning. We have this Mark Snow harpsichord music coming in and setting us in this different universe. You know, we know we're not anywhere near any aliens and we are nowhere near the FBI. It's Mulder and Scully right. are out here and there may not be anybody else left in the world because it just seems like it's just them. Yeah. So Mulder is walking up the stairs as we enter the main episode and then Scully's following him and this is when she's giving her sort of laundry list of rationalizations about the ingrained cliches from a thousand different horror movies and the unconscious yearnings that these imaginings satisfy and so forth about people wanting to see a spirit materialize, you know, and she talks about they're wearing the same haircuts. They haven't changed. They're wearing the same outfits, the same shabby clothes and so forth and not looking for anything better than what they have. And she's going on and on. And Mulder clearly wants her to stop talking so that he can hear a ghost if one would choose to appear. And this was really, I thought Jillian Anderson did a great job. I mean, who knows, you know, how many takes that took, but that's a lot of dialogue and a lot of, very sort of conceptual dialogue to sort of regurgitate as your acting partner is having to not listen to you. So I thought she did a great job with that. Definitely. It's, it's so interesting and it, and it brings a lot of, you know, what you would think Chris Carter's feelings are about it. How, how the ghosts have never aged. They look the same. They're Mm -hmm. all they want. You know, it does, it does tell more about, us as human beings that we need to see these people after they have gone instead of just realizing that people have gone and moved on. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. The time passes. So basically a door opens for them, clicks and the door opens and Scully ventures in and Mulder says, tell me you're not afraid. So they're already starting to talk about fears and so forth, which kind of comes back again at the end. And she admits that she is, but she says that it's irrational. So they walk in, they notice the clock is keeping perfect time, and every it looks lived in, basically. And then Mulder asks why anyone would want to live in a cursed house and goes through how every couple that has lived there has met a tragic end. And so then at that point, the lights flicker and go out. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 
91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Door slam shut. All again, like the, the classic haunted house tropes. And then they hear the thumping under the floorboards. And then this is sort of when they, I think when they start to play with the imagination, the skeleton looks back and sees that there is no ladder. And they just climb down the ladder from the top floor in that library. And there's not a ladder there now. And then, of course, like Mulder takes that moment to scare Scully. Remember, with like the flashlight under his face in the middle of everything. And so he's starting to pry up the floorboards, and they find these bodies that are dressed as they are under the floorboards. So, how did you think that that went over? Because I thought that was an interesting way to kind of like get them going in the episode. Well, there are a couple things I want to pop in there. Scully's saying it's an irrational fear, but there has already been like one of those. I don't think I've ever heard louder thunder or, you know, lightning noises. I mean, that is supremely loud. And during one of them, she's seen the image of Lyda already. So I think that's putting her on edge even more. And I'm going to say, you know, she was out shopping all day. And for all of us who have been in crowds shopping all day, you know, when we were allowed to be in crowds and everything, you get... So you're tired and irritable and tense and you probably haven't eaten. And, you know, so Scully's behavior seems over the top in places. Um, Not when she's delivering, you know, all the things, all the rationalizations. But when she starts freaking out from the get-go, you know, when she's fumbling with the door knob trying to get out and she's trying to get out really hard and she seems to be being sort of unscully but yeah i think i think her blood sugar is very low (laughs) right from from being out all day and being tense and and plus you know she already has a pretty tense job so it's not like she's relaxing at all so she's she's on edge she's a little bit on edge and and all these things that happened in that flash of light uh, that she sees for a second and did mm-hmm. I really see it? You know, she's saying she didn't really see it in her head. You know, I didn't really oh, see yeah. that. I, yeah. That's one of those ingrained horror film things or or whatever it is. So mm-hmm. I like how unhinged she gets. It's because it's different. You know, it's something we don't see a lot of. She's faced down some of the most incredible things. And we don't see her like this a lot. On occasion, we have right. seen her like this, but not a lot. I think that's interesting, too, that this night, when she seems unhinged, is bookended by stressful real-life experiences. Like, she has the whole shopping thing, you know, in the crowds and so forth uh, before it. And then she's talking about the family roll call under the tree, which, just the way she even says that, she's not talking about how she's going to get to be with her family. It's a requirement that she be there and just, like, another, you know obligation like she's talking about the time she has to be there and so forth so it's like she's already stressed out about the past and now she's stressed out about the future and then she has all these things that she doesn't 
want to believe going on as well. So I hadn't thought about it like that because you don't really have that much of her, you know, the stresses of what would be a normal life. Right. Exactly. Life. So then on the other hand, you have Mulder who has apparently been planning this whole voyage, you know, um, mm-hmm. he, pro- he probably read the literature on this. Oh, we can do oh, that yeah. on Christmas. <laughs> and he's very excited about it and he's playful about it and he's scaring her and, you know, He's the opposite of what Scully is right now, up until the point where the floorboards thing started, and they get into that kind of Edgar Allan Poe telltale heart yes. thing with the thumping of the boards, and and Mulder starts to change, you know, after that when this when this sequence happens. I wonder too now that you and I just thought about this with the, the thumping of the floorboards. If you're connecting it to the telltale heart, I wonder if there's some sort of manifestation of like guilt or remorse as well i always want to interpret what chris carter means when he has something you know like strange like bodies under floorboards but i wonder if there is some supposed to be like some deeper literary significance to that yeah i i always wonder when it comes to him i think like he has these sort of things like he knows about edgar Allan poe's the telltale heart he's like oh i'll throw that in there and yeah it's it's kind (laughs) of like a I call it the surfer dude mentality. Just like, I don't know if it has any deeper meaning other than, oh, look, the thumping of the floorboards is like the telltale heart, you know? So then maybe he's doing it to like goad us fans on because he knows we're going to pour over that and we're going to think about it. We're going to, what did he mean there? You know, maybe it's just a reference to it and maybe it's more. Right. That's true. Because I think a lot of it is, like, just make of this what you will. I'm going to put it in there, and maybe there's something to it, and maybe there's not, you know. So. I think he does that a lot. a lot. I agree. I agree. I feel like there are more instances coming up in this episode, too, where he's doing that. Right. So at this point, though, Scully realizes that, she, that she's wearing my outfit. The woman's wearing her outfit. <laughs> <laughs> and Walter says, how embarrassing. And then they figure out that those two people are them. And so they run out of the room and then into the same room. And they do it through several iterations of that. And I sort of find this part rather hypnotic to the point that I had to like rewind or what, you know, go back a scene and make sure that I was following exactly what was happening because it was just something that I enjoyed watching for some reason, them going from room to room like that. It's like Chris Carter's version of an escape room. You know, Mm -hmm. what's what's going on in here? How are they going to get out of here? And then... Just as an aside, when we get to season 11, the opening dream sequence of Ghoulie reminded me of this, when Scully's going in the house and going around and around, kind of in a hypnagogic state. Yep. So that was kind of cool. And so they plan to go, Mulder's going to go across the room, through the door, and come back into the same room. They figured out that that's how it's going to work, but then it doesn't work out, and he walks in the room, and is it's a separate room, walks back in the room where Scully was, and she's not there. So this is the point when we know there's something very strange going on. Very, very strange. It was strange before. And it's also the point in the episode that I started thinking that the house, it's kind of a representation of their minds. And I don't know if it's Mulder and Scully's mind or Chris Carter's mind, but it's almost like a metaphor, this haunted house. And I thought that was interesting. I don't know if that's something that, that you had thought about, like it being sort of like the depths of the mind. Yeah, I, I never really thought of it that way. Um, because I'm always entranced by the specifics of defining Mulder and Scully. But 
that's the kind of thing that Chris Carter puts into it and you absorb it without thinking about it. And on a broader scale, I think that that kind of thing is why we come back again and again to the X-Files and maybe not so much to other TV shows because there's this like subliminal text thing going on that we absorb. And even though I never thought about it as the house, you know, as a representation of the mind that is in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I think too, like you said, you go back to these things and if you watch them again and again, I think something that may have like, been at the back of your mind during a viewing kind of comes up at some other point. So our next scene is our first scene with Maurice at Asner. Mulder is trying to get out of the room and he's decided that shooting the lock off would be a great idea. So he does this and then finds that there is a brick wall behind the door. And so... Maurice comes in. I notice at this point there, and it may have come up earlier, and again, it may be nothing, but there's a bust on the shelf, on a high shelf, with a downturned head. And I just started noticing different odd set decoration pieces at this point. Hmm. I didn't know if you saw that. And then there's like a painting on an easel that's unfinished. There's just a lot of strange things around. And I almost, I like that it's dark. I almost wish we could see more of it, though, because you can only really see stuff when the lightning strikes really hard. Right. the room. And so now we have the first psychoanalysis between Maurice and Mulder. And he's trying to kind of counsel Mulder on his narcissistic ways, I guess you would call them, and asks if he's overcome by the impulse to make everyone believe him. Tells him he's in the field of mental health. And so this is, I think, a really fun psychological scene what did you think of it i love this scene i feel like this is chris carter and he is telling us who he thinks Mulder is or he's telling us who we think Mulder is you know Uh he's you know he's probably read all these words on on the message boards by now narcissistic (laughs) overzealous self-righteous egomaniac single-minded and he's playing with it so much but it's also right on you know it's like it's the thing that it's the unspoken thing that runs through the whole series that's who Mulder is and Maurice is right and so when Maurice tells Mulder this kind of stuff that's gotta hit home because Mulder is a smart guy he knows he's all these things you know and and Mm -hmm. so that's how he can play it's well I don't want to get to the pop psychology part but he is playing with his brain and doing it this way in a very obvious and to me funny way yeah and he even says he has a specialty, what he called soul prospectors. And then he says, this is probably my favorite quote from the scene. He says, it's a cross-axial classification I've codified <laughs> by extensive interaction with visitors like yourself. <laughs> and I think Mulder, having a background in psychology, would appreciate that. And when this episode first aired, I was in graduate school in a psychology program. And it wasn't in the mental health field, but it was still something that would reference. The, so the crap, I don't you may or may not, our listeners may or may not be aware of this, but he talks about the cross-axial classification, and it's from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 
has a basically psychopathology is classified along different axes. So you have like acute disorders and personality disorders and organic things and so forth. But I thought that that was so fun that Chris Carter put that in there. And he must, again, it could be just one of those things like, oh, I've heard of this. I've heard of cross axial classification. I'll put that in there. But right. I know I appreciated that at that time. That is so much dialogue that Ed Asner had to deliver there. And I can't imagine, you know, trying to get all those words out and get them out in, in an entertaining fashion that's why i think he's such a marvel here in this role i really do too because it's entertaining and it's patient he's not just rushing through it he's you know having this prolonged interaction with Mulder, and then at the end you know Mulder is saying like oh no i'm not alone my partner's here and maurice doesn't completely believe him he goes to the door and says brick wall or brick wall go ahead and change your life and so, of course, Mulder walks into the the, do- the open door, which changes into a brick wall. But I think that that's a, it's an interesting picture into what Maurice's motivation would be, which is still not entirely clear to me throughout the rest of the episode. I think he loves playing with Mulder. I mean, he, he's got a handle on who this guy is. And so he knows he can make him walk into a brick wall, <laughs> you know? And, yeah. And so I'm not thinking of it in terms of a brick wall being, you know, you're boxed in or something like that. I'm just laughing because he walked into the brick wall. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill every day we rise challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in at u.s border patrol protecting our borders is more than a job it's a calling agents answer the call working together to keep our country and community safe if you are ready for a new mission Join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. I just think it's funny. <laughs> oh, see, no, I am thinking about like all of the psychological ramifications of that and what that means. But I think it's funny. I think it's funny he made him walk into it. But I feel like he's also offering Mulder this possibility that he could change his life. And that's not what we see after this. So that, I, I don't know, that to me was interesting because there are a couple times when maybe Maurice seems like he's, I can't decide if he's actually trying to help them, but that was one of those when he says, go ahead, change your life. And he may know that Mulder's not going to do that, but he's offering it as an alternative, it seems to me. We have the lightning flashing and then it goes, I like the way it segues from that to Scully being on the other side. And this is her first scene with Lily Tomlin as Lyda, who comes through the opposite door and makes quite an appearance. So what do you make of this scene between the two? Well, I just want to say before I start that, that the I have the script for, for this episode. And the stage directions say, Scully screams like we've never heard Scully scream before. <laughs> that, so she, she does. She, he is, Chris Carter is really interested in Scully being completely unhinged in this episode. And... Maybe the the drawback of that is that we don't consider that Scully would completely freak out. 
in these circumstances because of everything she's been through. So you have to sort of be able to put that knowledge aside. You know, you have to say, okay, I'm still going to enjoy this. Or maybe for the people who don't like this episode as much, they're not able to. And, you know, that's the thing about watching a television program on any level. You you have to decide what you're going to buy into and what you're not going to buy into. And I'm completely buying into Scully being completely unhinged. Okay. I, and and I, for and for the reasons we said before, I'm you know I'm giving her the backstory of being shopping all day and and being she's exhausted, she's tired, she doesn't you know she doesn't get a Christmas break like the rest of us might, and so I'm giving that to her in this situation to get her to the point in which Chris Carter wants her to be in this story, and so when she sees Lyda, who she's already seen sort of a flash of before. I can see, you know, this is more than just a fear mechanism of cold winds blowing through and thumping. There's something more internal going on with her. Mm-hmm. I think that I believe it, or I buy it in, the, like, the larger context of what she's been through, probably, and then what she goes through after this sort of reflected back, I guess, made me think that it was a little bit more reasonable, or maybe that... It's overstated so that it can really be shown and address it rather than just kind of her usual more, you know, internal way of dealing with things. But it's certainly something that bothered me when it first aired. And I think that it was probably my like stumbling block to the episode when I first watched it because I thought it was too silly and too out of character and I sort of wanted Scully to be as she had been before. But right. I appreciate it more now. No, I, I, I totally understand that and I wouldn't... You know, I wouldn't think otherwise, because it's a huge thing you have to buy into in order to enjoy the episode. And mm-hmm. if you don't, you know, you're going to have you're going to have trouble doing that. True. And I think it's that it's the shaking and the kind of like quivering. And then also in the upcoming part, when she passes out after she sees the bullet hole in Maurice and Lyda, the bullet holes. That to me was like ridiculous that Scully would pass out. But then when you're couching it in these terms of you know, either the recent history of her, you know, and the things that she's been through building up, or like you're saying, she hasn't eaten and she's been shopping and she's already stressed out, like all of that together, it at least gets me over that hurdle. So I don't know what you, if you think that's the same. I sort of buy the fainting because at this point, now if you're buying, you know, how she's been behaving all episode in the context of just this episode, she's pretty worked up. Okay, mm-hmm. and she's she's a doctor, she's a scientist, and she's seeing a gunshot through her <laughs> through Lida's <laughs> stomach and a bullet wound in Maurice's head. So she's seen a lot of things, nothing quite like that. So I don't really think fainting is too far a stretch in that situation. Okay, and I also I think in the scene too we have Lida playing on Scully's fear and also on her disbelief. She comes in and she says, you look like you saw a ghost. And then she said, that li- there's one line that I remember, even from when they had the, the, you know, the trailer for the episode, isn't it like advertisement before it airs, when she says there are ghosts in this house, you know. And there's something the way, about the way that Lily Tomlin says that that's just perfect. It's kind of just, this, it's sinister. And then there's a thunderclap right afterwards. I don't know if that's anything that you noticed, but that was one of my favorite like, little things in that scene. Uh, I think it's a great line. 
It's yeah. there's there the way Lily Tomlin is delivering it is there's mm-hmm. more going on there than than just the line. There are ghosts in this house, you know. It's eerie. Yeah. Scully is then becoming more and more unhinged. She's talking about the corpses that were under the floorboard, thinks that Lida is playing tricks on her, and Lida is dismissing this idea that there were corpses under the floorboard. Scully's asking, you know, she's asking her various questions about, like, the condition of the house. It's like, what's going on here? Basically trying to figure out what's going on. And so Lida is saying that the furniture's covered because they're having the house painted. And she asks, like, well, where's the Christmas tree? And Lida says, we're Jewish, boo. And I thought that that was, I mentioned this to you earlier. I've just thought about it recently, but I wonder if there was some sort of like historical comment to her saying the boo after saying we're Jewish. I don't know if you thought any more about that or not. No, I didn't. I didn't really. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I know didn't... it's like a stretch, but. I, I just thought she was being a ghost and doing one of those weird ghost things, you know, boo. Right. Because she knows how unsettled Scully is by this point. And Mm -hmm. so she's just giving her the old, you know, she was talking about there were ghosts in the house. And now she's showing she's a ghost by saying, boo. Yeah. And I agree with that. I thought that that's all I had thought until like last night when I was going over this (laughs) and watching it. (laughs) I don't know what it was, but it could be. Like, when we're recording this right now, there's all the talk about, like, the history of viruses and so forth and talking about the Spanish flu. And that's what Mulder had brought up in the conversation in the car at the beginning. And he's talking about Maurice and Lida and so forth. So I could have just had that era on my mind. But when she said, we're Jewish, boo, I wondered if it was something about the perception of Jews in that time as well. And making some, again, like another, like you said, like something that Chris Carter just knew about. And threw in there that if you wanted to pay attention to it as a social commentary, you could, or you could just think it was a fun ghost reference. So yeah, that's I that's the beauty. That's the real beauty of it, though. You know, it it could mean more to some people, but people who don't know what it means aren't going to be. You know, their appreciation isn't going to be detracted by that. Right. Was there anything else in that scene that you wanted to talk about about the kind of that interaction between Lyda and Scully? Maurice went through all that stuff with Mulder mm-hmm. and, and telling him his life. And it's sort of a smaller recap of Scully's life. But Lida says to her, you know, you poor child, you have, you must have such an awful, awful small life. life yeah. And you're running around chasing things you don't even believe in. And it's a very minor analysis compared to what we just saw happen to Mulder. But it's also on target with how these two ghosts are targeting these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It kind of is an analysis of Scully as she relates to Mulder rather than just her, I guess. Right. Yeah. So then at that point, Maurice comes in and Scully has them completely unhinged now. She has them stand next to each other. And that's when we see the bullet holes. And Maurice says that this is violating their civil rights, even though they are ghosts, I guess they still have civil rights. And that he has friends at the ACLU. Although I read that in 1917, the ACLU was apparently the ACLB. So it was like the Bureau, not the Union, which I thought was interesting. And then you had mentioned, of course, that Ed Asner, it's kind of like a a fun fact thrown in there, that Ed Asner was very active with the ACLU. 
Ed Asner was very involved with the ACLU because he's an activist to this day. You know, he's on Twitter still being an activist for social justice and he's defending fundamental rights. And so I thought he probably really appreciated having that, that one line included, which again, if you didn't know the connection between Ed Asner and the ACLU, you wouldn't be hurt by it. You know, you're not right. missing anything. It's just a good line for people who know. Right. Yeah. I like that too. Cause I didn't really, I didn't know that right off the bat. And I probably didn't even know that until recently about it Asner, but it's not something that's too, you know, metacritical that you have to pay attention to it, but it's fun. Right. But yeah. And so after Scully passes out, Maurice and Lida are basically talking over her passed out body about their approach to haunting. So Maurice is saying they've resorted to gimmicks and they're kind of having this argument about like what they should be doing, what their approach is, why Lida has chosen Christmas as the day of the year to haunt people rather than Halloween. It's been so long since they've had a good double murder (laughs) and all of this. And then they said they're going to take us off the tour literature. If they don't, if they let their reputation slip, they're going to take us off the tour literature and all of this is sort of fun, but then it made me think, and I know it doesn't matter, but it's like, to whom are they reporting? Like, who's going to take them off the tour literature? And why, how did she get to choose a holiday? You know, and it it makes it seem like there's some sort of association for this sort of thing, I guess. Like, it's not an isolated incident. You know? there, there are a lot of people who like to go to murder sites, you know, mm-hmm. who are into that kind of thing. And so... If it's reported in in the newspaper that there was a double homicide on Christmas at this house, but it hasn't happened for a couple decades, then maybe it falls off the map. But I think once people hear of this kind of thing, there is always an interest in it. I think Maurice and Lida are underestimating the kind of crazies who would come out to see this and to see if they would get possessed or to see if they could see ghosts or whatever. Yeah. They're underestimating the general majority. Well, not, no, not the general majority, but the general public. Mm-hmm. So, but they together decide that Mulder, they agree that Mulder and Scully seem pretty miserable. That's their estimation of them. And they want to show them how lonely Christmas can be. So, and they seem absolutely delighted by this. <laughs> it's giving them great Christmas joy to think about that. We've had these two pairings. In our next scene, we have Lida and Mulder. And so Mulder's climbing up. There's no ladder there when he's climbing up. But, of course, there's a ladder when Lida climbs down in a few minutes. So it's another disappearing and appearing prop. What do you make of this scene? I think it's an interesting dynamic between Mulder and Lida. And I I feel like his connection to the ghost is a little bit deeper than Scully's, for one thing. I love this this scene because now... There's been a psychoanalysis, and now we're going to hear more about the ghosts and how they've been all, you know, all these years. And mm-hmm. and going with Chris Carter's take that they do say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, 
Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Change and they age and there's a gut or, you know, whatever. <laughs> and the romance is the first thing to go. And Lyda is giving us a look at ghosts that we never get. That is that is an image, that is an idea we never get about ghosts. We don't think about them aging, and we don't think about them, their minds changing about things that may have happened over the years. I just really appreciate it. And also, the other thing is, when she's doing the book trick, you know, she's, yes. she's picking out the book that tells their story, Mulder looks like a real kid at Christmas there, watching her do that. I mean... He's he's back to having a good time with it, I guess, because his his session with the um, psychiatrist is over and now he could just enjoy it. I love that. That's one of my favorite parts in the episode. So he has this like moment of wonder on his face in the middle of, you know, all of the, the mystery going on. He's just delighted by seeing those books pop out of the shelf. And by doing that, she sort of calms him down from his previous encounter so that she could then mm. go into what her portion of this of this conversation is going to be. And the, her portion of the conversation seems to be about Scully. So she's not having it so much with Scully, but she's having it with Mulder about Scully, saying that they're filled with despair and woeful Christmas melancholy. And then Mulder seems to reject that. She's like, well, maybe it was your partner, you know, kind of planting that seed or trying to plant that seed. And then bringing up the trust issues as well. She's trying to convince, at some point she's trying to convince Mulder that he and Scully almost are fated to shoot each other. And Mulder has this kind of simple faith that they're not. That Scully's not going to shoot him. He wouldn't shoot her. He wouldn't let her shoot herself. And Lyda says if Mulder shoots first, the rest is an act of faith. So it seems to me she's trying to play on these things that are important to Mulder. Like like faith and trust and these sorts of things. Because she says the murder-suicide is all about trust. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's, it's not the same sort of psychoanalysis because it's not purely psychological, but it's almost a little bit deeper than that. Yeah, so. I'd agree with that. One thing that I was going to talk about was that Lida talks about the bodies under the floor, which she kind of denied to Scully, but she says something about the bodies under the floor. And she says, maybe that was some kind of union symbolism. Mm-hmm. Did you have any thoughts on that? Or did you think that was another kind of Chris Carter drive-by inclusion. I do think that that specifically is one of those Chris Carter moments where he pops a catchphrase in there, but Mm -hmm. also because he knows that it's going to start, our wheels start spinning. Now, I'm as far away an expert on the subject of union symbolism as it is possible to be you know when i when i think of that kind of thing i think of Mulder dying or close to death and coming back in season three and season eight and i never really attributed it to this particular story other than the fact that lily tomlin's character says it and i Mm. i sort of consider it again like the telltale heart sort of thing it's sort of a throwaway and you guys you guys make of it what you want to think about it. Okay. I think that's interesting to connect it to future events in the show, because I think that the idea of the union symbolism could be some sort of projection on a future state or a future psychological state. But the other thing I was going to add is that 
I was reading in, so Jung's, I think it's his autobiography. It's Memories, Dreams, Reflections is the name of it. And he talks about a dream that he had being on the top floor of a house and then basically going down through these four levels of a house. And the third level was a basement level. And then he found this like little, not staircase, but something that led down to a cave level and discovered all these primitive cultural remains. So it's basically going from like the self through the family, through the current culture or social environment into sort of like the deeply primitive past. And in the fourth level in the cave, he found like dust on the ground that included bones and two human skulls, very old and partially disintegrated. And then I woke up. So I don't know. I, whether or not that was something that was on Chris Carter's mind or not, who knows? But I think it's interesting that it kind of maps onto that as closely as it does. After that, after it might be Jungian symbolism, Lida says, or maybe there's a secret lover's pact. And Mulder says, kind of sighs and says, we're not lovers. To me, Lida sounds almost like a shipper, or at least a fan at this point. Because <laughs> she says that they're so attractive and they'll have time to work this out. And I personally don't take it as like a sigh of regret, but rather frustration that he has to explain their lives to other people. I don't know what you thought of that. It, I don't. I, I think it's probably referencing some sort of like Romeo and Juliet style suicide, you know, in Lida's mind. But mm-hmm. what did you think? Well, I'm, I was just focusing on the attractive part because I think this is <laughs> this is the hunkiest that Mulder gets. I mean, you know, to paraphrase Eddie Van Blunt, he's a damn good looking man. man yeah. <laughs> I just yeah. love Mulder in this, and so I, I always say this. I'm not a shipper, but I also believe that the only person for Mulder is Scully, and the only person for Scully is Mulder. But imagine how crestfallen people were, all those people, when he says, we're not lovers. I'm like, oh my god. Whereas that like made my heart sing. I was so happy. Because <laughs> I'm not a shipper. I agree with you. I don't think they would be with someone else. I think they're the only person for each other. But it's like, it's in the context in which they are, in that kind of vocate I don't mean vocation just in terms of like you go to a job but like in a meaningful journey context at this point Chris Carter didn't feel the need to have that relationship you know in the story in the forefront of the story and we got like that kiss in triangle and that was supposed to hold us off for a while (laughs) (laughs) and it did it Mm -hmm. does for me you know it does for me but there's this groundswell of shipping coming up behind me and behind him that he that he is not going to be able to deal with yeah and Lida says this isn't a pure science and I know she's talking about like the you know the work and the pranks or what have you that they're doing but I think that also applies to Mulder and Scully and what they've kind of brought into the house with them because she does say that they should have talked about their real feelings before they came in there so she gets that out in the open right yeah it seems to me that Lyda is basically trying to convince Mulder that Scully is sad and needs to be put out of her misery and that they can work all of these things out together in the hereafter. So that kind of goes to your idea that they're going to have this life as ghosts you know, where their relationship continues and they age and so forth. Mm-hmm. And Lyda is um, suggesting this to Mulder. What was it she said about the you're not going to be eating any Christmas ham? <laughs> Did you have anything else on that scene? No, not on that one. I'm I'm ready to get on to the next one. So the next one is going to be Maurice and Scully. And he's basically trying to tell her that he's locked the door. Scully's trying to get out. He's locked the door for her protection. 
and is saying, you know, do you realize what a seriously disturbed person this is? You might have to defend yourself against that crazy partner of yours. And it kind of proffers her the car keys that supposedly Mulder did not take from her. I still don't know who took the car keys. I mean, I because why does he bring that up to Mulder? What'd you do? Take her car, take keys? Her car I keys? I mean, if he didn't take the car keys, but then Maurice has the car keys. So, yeah, I didn't quite understand how all of that worked either, because when Maurice says, what did you do? Take your car keys. Mulder was kind of smiling before that. And then you see his face, like he kind of frowns and looks a little guilty. So that gives the impression that he did take her car keys. But then they end up with Maurice, you know, so I don't know how that. Which how that isn't out of the realm of possibility. He's a ghost. I mean, you know, he could, he could have gotten the keys off Mulder at some point yeah. to, to which we don't know. Yeah. Well, Lida got the gun off of him without him knowing because she hands it. She's like, take it. And she hands him the gun. You know, he looks at his holster and it's not there. So I guess that's one of their skills. They got skills. Yep. They got. Yep, they do. So Scully wants to know where Maurice got the keys because she's still skeptical. And then, of course, Maurice tells Scully that Mulder's acting out of deep-seated terror of being alone. And then he knocks on the door and goes to open the door. And Maurice is still kind of warning her that he's seen it happen too many times in this house. And Maurice is, he's good at the game. I don't know if he's enjoying the game as much as Lida does. That's just the impression that I get. Yeah, I can see that as well. So the next scene, we go to the commercial. Mulder, come, well, Mulder comes into the room shooting at Scully after Maurice opens the door and basically is shooting the mantle behind her and they have their guns pulled on each other. Then this part of Scully and Mulder with their guns drawn, or what we think is Scully and Mulder with their guns drawn and held on each other, reminds me of that scene in Ice early, early on in their partnership and the issues of trust there. And Mulder is saying, it's me or you, you or me, one of us has to do it. Did you have any thoughts on that? You get the impression that Mulder is not who he is, to Mm -hmm. extend the ice metaphor there. Yes. Because he's speaking in non-Mulder-esque sort of ways. But I love the line about what's waiting for them. More loneliness in 365 shopping days to even more loneliness. More loneliness. And she makes a good argument, and you can see how people would have fallen victim to this before. Yeah. Yeah. And she's saying at this point, we don't have to do this and we can get out of here, which is a very scully thing to do, I think, to kind of like figure out another way in a dire situation and and to tell Mulder there's another way to get out. And she's also saying she doesn't believe what he's saying. So it's, I don't, that's an interesting context for her to not believe because it's a good way of not believing, you know, but she's still telling Mulder that she doesn't believe him. And then he shoots her in the abdomen or so it looks. And says Merry Christmas Scully and then holds the gun to his head and then this may be the part that you're talking about because we see we the audience from that angle see Lida holding a gun to her own head and saying in a happy new year and then Maurice rushes behind her and kind of pulls her back and away and she's struggling and so forth so that's the part like I, I still don't understand exactly what Maurice intends but I like that your idea that it's more Lida that's really enjoying the game right that's that's the way I look at it and There is another bit in the original script that I want to interject here. When Maurice is pulling her away, she is still, as Mulder, yelling, I don't want to be alone, Scully, Scully. And the two of Mm. them, Maurice and Lyda, are laughing to themselves about it. So she really gets off on the game. That's interesting. I wonder why they took that out. It might have just been 
time or it might have been, you know, we don't know what it looked like when it was, you know, maybe it it just didn't work. Technically, it might not have worked or script-wise, it might not have worked. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to to hear that that's, that's what Lida would have said. That is interesting. And then in the next bit, Lida is Scully. She pretends to be Scully and Mulder goes in the room and finds her and thinks that she's been shot and that thinks that she has then shot him. When she, I noticed that when after she shoots him, supposedly, and he's falling down, he says, I think he says, like, Scully, help me. And it's just, like, very quiet. But I think he says that. So it's like, does he really not believe that she's done that? Or what? You know, I'm not sure what's going on. Because Lida, then we see, was Scully and is laughing, lying on the floor. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that she plays both of them. Like, one of them doesn't play Mulder and one of them doesn't play Scully. But Lida just plays them. So at this point, they're both, they both think they've been shot. They're both down. And then we have the old-timey record player playing Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. And that starts on its own. And I love right. that moment. I think that's, that's classy. I think, um, as far as I know, from reading different X-Files books and whatnot, the original idea for this show was Chris Carter and Frank Spotnitz came up with that idea of them dragging their bloody bodies around a house. And as you said, it was Dana's apartment you know, in, in previous mm-hmm. incarnations. So they started with sort of the end scene in mind, and then they had to build around it. And so that's why that scene looks so good, because it was the, you know, it was the nucleus of the whole idea. I read that too. I thought that that was interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but that is kind of the nucleus of the whole thing, because it, it's very detailed. I don't know how they got upstairs again, because I thought they were both downstairs, but I don't suppose that really matters in a house where every room is the same as the next one, you know. But there is that sort of, almost like the trail of blood behind Scully when Mulder's like crawling down the stairs going after her and so forth. And it does seem very detailed in that regard. And then just the emotional complexity of it too, I think, is maybe a little bit heightened as well. Definitely. And, you know, at at no point in which a gun is pulled on the other one, does the other one take out the gun and shoot the other one? And there's Mm -hmm. an immense amount of trust between these two. (laughs) They were just shot by, allegedly, by the other one. Each other, right. You know, and but they're still not finishing them off or something. And it shows, you know, just the breadth of the caring. Yeah. And I think, too, it goes, to me, this scene goes beyond... I mean, a lot of the episode goes beyond the episode itself, but I think that this scene really goes behind the, beyond the episode because for as light as some of the sixth season is, a lot of it is them just, like, kind of kicking each other back and forth for a while, it seems like. You know, Mulder's been upset with Scully for, I think, since the movie, since Fight the Future, for some of the, you know, or not the, not the movie itself, but the aftermath of it, you know, for disbelieving or doubting him and that type of thing. And then she's been upset with him as well for different things. And I think that some of that like tension underlying is coming out in this. And so they have their guns pulled. They look like they're going to shoot each other. They think they've shot each other. And they, you know, they have been kind of pummeling each other. But emotionally, I think, throughout some of the sixth season, you know. But then there's this realization that it, I don't want to say it didn't matter, but there's this realization that they're not shot. And I think that that was, I think that was the recognition that they were still okay, you know. Definitely. That's where you sort of you sort of get that their bond is stronger than anything that these ghosts can put upon them. And I think 
even though they had been taking in what the ghosts were saying the whole time and sort of recognizing bits and pieces of what they were saying is true, they know each other at their hearts. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how this comes out in the end. Yeah, and she says that she's not going to make it. And he says, not without me, you're not. And then she, I think she asks if he's afraid and admits that she is. And I think that was sort of the the beginning of them realizing that there was nothing wrong with them, but they were still kind of in sync. The moment when Scully says, I can't, reminds me, there's a moment in Fight the Future when Mulder tells Scully, it's in the rescue sequence, and he tells her to keep moving, and she says that, I can't. And he says, yeah, you can, and then picks her up and carries her. And that, to, so it's just like that one line, but it just reminds me of the connection with that to him telling her that she's not shot, and it's all a trick, you know, and to kind of get up, and he helps her up again. And then they run to the door, and as soon as they come outside, it's just like instant, you know, magic that they're completely clean again. So they've been suffering and just wallowing in these puddles of blood, and then all of a sudden, their clothes are clean-pressed and perfect-looking. Yes, what a relief. (laughs) I I remember that on original airing, and you might too, and, you know, there are three minutes left in the episode or something, and you go, how do they get out of this, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. And that... Well, you open a door and your your clothes are clean. Oh, okay. That's it, yeah. And sometimes at the end of a story, I think, you know, writers might take a hasty way of getting characters out of a situation if they're on a time crunch like that. But this really makes sense to me. And I think it's probably because of what you said about that being the core part of the story, being them, Mulder and Scully, crawling in their blood and so forth. So if that was already the heart of it, then the ending naturally comes from that, even if it's a quick turnaround. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, then the whole thing was an illusion. And it seems like that step outside of the house, you know, they're emerging clean from it. But that, that to me, goes back to my pet theory of it being, the house being, like, the condition of a mind. You know, it's like they're in some sort of depression or something wasn't okay with them. And then when they kind of came out, they realized that they were in an illusion and then came out and they were clean. So I like to think of it that way. I now do, too. (laughs) Good. (laughs) I also noted, just in the sort of the timeline, that this is one of Mulder and Scully's first real mutual hallucination or telepathy experiences together, I believe. Because we have Field Trip, and then we have some of that in the Biogenesis trilogy, but I think this is the first time that that happens. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So I like that, kind of as a precursor. And then, you know, in the beginning, when we were talking about the teaser, I mentioned that I love that image of Mulder and Scully in the car when they're talking and he's telling her the story. And I think that my second favorite image is them running from the house through the mist to get to their cars while Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas is playing in the background. Right. And then we go to Maurice and Lida in their armchairs, kind of as the end of the, the house part of the story here. She says it's Christmas, and Maurice says one for the books, which of course makes me think that it's part of their book that came off the shelf. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they're talking about how they almost had Mulder and Scully. What did you What did you take from that? It's sort of funny. At, at that point, when Maurice says, for most people, it's another joyless day of the year, he seemed to have a better grip on everything earlier, you know, now. And he's yeah. just like, we can't let our failures haunt us, you know. <laughs> I guess they never expected to come up against two, two such solid citizens here who, who really knew themselves and their relationship well enough that they wouldn't blow each other's heads off, you know. Or, right. 
or whatever. But they also, they take it really well. It's not like they're saying, you know, it doesn't change the way they are. They realize somebody got the best of them, and they're sort of admiring them for that, to my opinion. Okay. I like that interpretation. Mulder and Scully, I guess, got the best of them just by being themselves together rather than actually defying them, you know. And, yeah, knowing themselves at heart despite all the scares and the truth that was hitting them, you know. They mm-hmm. they didn't use their weapons on each other because right. that's how you get the murder-suicide. The people actually, you know, you can play games with them all you want, but they actually they, have to do it. Yeah. And they and Mulder and Scully didn't. Yeah. They have to make that choice. That's true. At the end of the scene, I think it's interesting because we hear laughter and it's not coming from that scene directly. It's coming from Mulder's TV that we go to after we leave Lyda and Maurice in front of their fireplace. And so he's sitting on the couch. He's all depressed and he's watching A Christmas Carol. And Scrooge is basically saying all the things that are, I guess, in Mulder's head about, I don't deserve to be so happy. But then he goes into, like, I just can't help it. And how, you know, the narrator goes into how Scrooge became as good a friend and as good a master and as good a man and so forth. And it almost seems like Scrooge heeded Maurice's advice and kind of changed his life, you know, (laughs) and became a different person. So I I like the way that that was inserted into the story. Mm -hmm. So then Scully comes up. Mulder seems to not know at first that someone's knocking on his door because he looks at the ceiling (laughs) as though he's not expecting that anybody would come to see him. And she can't sleep and she comes in. And then we have the scene of the little bit of the discussion about Mulder's psychoanalysis and what he has learned from it. And realizing that, Scully realizing that she does want to be out there with him, but Mulder realizing that what he's saying is sort of self-righteous and so forth. So I don't know. Do you think that they learned something from those experiences? I think they they sort of took it in the way we take in the little subconscious Chris Carter ism. Okay. <laughs> you know, right. like okay, she asked, "That was all in our heads, right?" And he says, "Must have been." That's not a very Mulder-esque response to when Scully usually says something. So he's right. giving her that. He's telling her what she needs to hear. Right, and I think so, so too. He's growing, you know. He's grown, even if he doesn't know how he's grown through this through this experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then she says that maybe she did want to be out there with him. So she's kind of admitting that to his admission, maybe. They probably both have to realize that they both had they could have killed each other and didn't, and yeah. their bond has to be stronger because of it. I feel like they recognize that the bond is unusual, but much stronger as well. And it's a nice reflection kind of on a, I feel like season six does a lot of reflecting on what is the normal life. And it's part of, you know, what's kind of what Scully went through when she started on the X-Files and then it comes back into play in this season. And they've just gone through Dreamland and Dreamland 2 with Scully asking Mulder if he doesn't want like a normal life and just to get out of the car. And then we have later episodes throughout of people that are kind of trying to simulate some type of conventional life. And so to me, it's also them recognizing that they have like this, you know, unusual but meaningful life that they've kind of built together. Mm-hmm. Although Scully looks, she looks a little bit awkward just at the kind of, I guess the personal emotion of it. And then when Mulder says that, I, he, that he got her a gift, he says, I know we weren't going to exchange gifts, but I got you a little something. First thing I think about that 
is that I appreciate they have conversations that kind of out, occur outside of our knowledge of them. Mm-hmm. So we know that they've talked about that. But then when he says that he got her a gift, Scully, this is my least favorite part of the episode. She says Mulder, but she says it in such a like Mulder, you know, that kind of non-Scully way. So that was another thing that I just thought was a little too sweet. But I do like that it's a sweet scene. I think I would take that infinitely over the kiss in Millennium, which mm. really I find jarring, you know. Oh, that's I, I enjoy this scene much more, especially as the camera is cutting off. Their scene is still going, and we're going off in this direction. You know, yeah. that's what I love about it. Yeah. I, just, I like that it is kind of a private moment and you can't see. They can keep unwrapping the pra- like ripping and ripping the packaging on presents and not ever, we don't see what they get. But I'm okay with that. I think that that's I, their experience. Yeah. And then we see that they, in fact, are having the white Christmas that Scully talked about, you know, kind of as an excuse in the beginning. They really are having at the end of the, their episode. Was there anything else about that last scene that you wanted to add about the gift giving and just that general conversation? It's just, it's just a nice little scene in which it brings home that we can enjoy their relationship without them having to be all. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. ...over each other or whatever, and we can understand that they are soulmates of a kind without... It being us being hit over the head with it. They just went through something that a lot of people couldn't have gotten through. And they are strong people and they are stronger together. And that's what I get out of that. What other thoughts did you have on the episode? Or was there anything that you wanted to pick up on as a discussion point that we haven't gotten to just yet? The only other thing I wanted to bring up that I don't think we mentioned too much on was about Mark Snow because mm-hmm. he has that really baroque kind of sounding music with the harpsichord and i know his influences were haydn's toy symphony and the great 1982 movie death trap which i absolutely love but the music in both of those is sort of brighter and in hmm. here it's not quite as bright because it's sort of spun through the x-files and the whole thing that I was saying before, where in this episode, these are the only two humans on Earth. And it just feels like their universe, their world, and we're watching it. And at the end, we're watching it from outside the window, you know? So I think it's very... Sometimes the Mark Snow scores, you don't 
pay attention not you don't pay attention you don't realize what you're hearing it's just there and it's heightening things and it's keeping you in the frame of the scene and whatnot but here I notice it more I definitely noticed it more in this episode it's also needed more in this episode and so that's what I like about it it's very bold and uh, it's part of the story. It's a character in the story. So five characters in the story. No, six, because yeah. we've got to count the mansion. Six oh, characters in the story. Yeah. So I just wanted to point out that, that I appreciate the the different nature of Mark Snow's score here. Yeah, I think it works really well for being so specific. And it seems like it, like the harpsichord part especially is used when a door opens or when they're going into a room or something like that, sort of like a what's in there, you know, what's going to happen. I think it's really effective in that way. I thought that the character of Lyda was sort of reminiscent of Miss Havisham in Great Expectations. Uh-huh. And I started thinking about that because it was something that Gillian Anderson said about Miss Havisham when she played her for that, it was the BBC movie adaptation a few years ago. It was talking about her being somebody that just basically was a addicted or absorbed with her grief and sort of stopped living at a certain point. And all of the talk about people staying in their same outfits and the same haircuts and so forth, I think really ties in with that. And it's almost the idea that Miss Havisham is sort of like an emotional suicide and she could look very much like Lida, you know, if you wanted to take that interpretation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that also, I think, introduces this, like, the untaken by Mulder and Spelly possibility that they could have just, like, stopped their emotional lives at any moment of loss, you know, or tragedy, and they didn't do it. But it was that Ms. Havisham reference. Because even, like, that white gown, all of that, you know, right. kind of ties in. Reminds me of that. Cool. Yeah. Well, if you're ready, we'll go over some listener comments, and then you can kind of chime in whatever your thoughts are on the comments. All right. Okay. Open, open that mailbag. All right. And if there are any that you, because I know you read them as well, if there are any that you think of that you want to mention, please feel free to jump in. So from Facebook, Andrew Blaker says that he watches the episode every Christmas Eve and thoroughly enjoys it and says that the strength lies in the guest stars and in Chris Carter's writing, David and Jillian's performance is being a given. And then he talks about the standout moment being Mulder and Scully dragging themselves across the floor in blood, each believing that they shot one another. Which is interesting because that is, you know, as you were saying, sort of it's the climax, but it's also the genesis of the idea for the whole thing. So Right. Cardwin Foley says, I love the episode, and she also mentions the blood-drenched climax and says it has shades of home, which I thought was interesting. I never would have thought about that, um, connecting that to home. And she says it's so bleak it's funny. But the, mo- the moment when our heroes admit they're both scared is incredibly poignant. And I really, I agree with that too. I think mm-hmm. there's something that's, despite the gore and then the, you know, some of the comedy before that, I think that is a very poignant moment. And then she says that she enjoys the lampshading of Mulder and Scully's psychologies. I've never heard of lampshading. I'm not sure if it's something that's like gaslighting, but it's a really interesting term that Cardwin has used. And then she says it's as if Tomlin and Asner portraying fans who are unpacking their theories about the characters (laughs) (laughs) which that's kind of goes back to what i was thinking about lida being almost acting like a fan at some point and she says only in the world of the show instead of real people in fandom discussing fictional characters it's ghost story characters discussing real people oh i like her take 
I do too. Yes, I'm going to be thinking about that the next time I watch the episode. Oh, me too. Me too. How the story kind of goes from the ghosts being in the story to them kind of coming in, you know, and controlling the story. Um, Cheryl Betty simply says, I could watch this episode every day and still enjoy it. For me, it's perfect. Alicia Walker Sharer says, also, it's a perfect episode. So you're right. We have we've gone through a lot of positives. A lot of people that say it's just absolutely perfect. And then she says the comedy and the feel-good aspects and then Mulder and Scully realizing something about themselves and they're admitting this to each other. And then Scully's saying it's her choice to follow him on the way out their cases. Michael Little says, I enjoy it and it's fun. On the other hand, I think Carter's campy direction doesn't really match the script. It's not awful, just not one of my favorites. Do you think that the direction complements the script or do you see them as being sort of disjointed? Um, I, it sort of works for me in mm-hmm. that I think he was trying, you know, he had pictures in his head and he was trying to put them on, on tape. And, and when you try and do that, you, you probably lose some of what originally was in his head. But for me, it works. I would sort of like to hear more about why he thinks it didn't work. Yeah, I would too. Because I think for me, it works as well. There's some of his, if you look at sort of like the big pieces that he's done as a writer and director, there are a few of them where I would say like one thing, either the writing or the direction takes away from the other. There's something that doesn't go well. But I would say that like this is one where they, whatever level you think the whole episode, you know, exists on, they kind of go together very well. Like the performances, the way those are directed, the way the shots are done, I think right. it goes well. But I am, I, I, I am curious what he's seen in it. Um, and then Chris Knowles says that he does, he's not really into it. Basically, he, I, he said this on Twitter as well, that a lot of the sort of the middle comedy stuff, like the light comedy stuff doesn't work for him, especially Chris Carter's stuff. Uh, I can see that. I, I totally understand that. Yeah. I mean, I think for him, it's that episode, but also just that's like the X-Files light, like you were talking about, that sort of season six vibe that came along that he just does not care for. And, well, they kept hitting it, us with that. You know, it was mm-hmm. like one after another and another. And and when you look deeper into it, there is more there. But on the surface, all you can see is this comedy and, you know. Right. And I think, too, because he mentions the comedy being broad. And I, I tend, personally, to not like broad comedy usually either. And it's not, you know, I feel like the Darren Morgan scripts have more of a sublime comedy for the most part. And then the Vince Gilligan script, some of that's a little bit broad, but some of it's a little bit wittier as well. So maybe that's part of it too, just sort of like the larger comedy, broader. And then Michael Little replies that the episode should have been darker and scarier. I feel like that's kind of a theme that we see in a lot of the comments coming up is like whether or not it should have been darker or is it truly a comedy. Right. And you know what? I could have... I could see this episode being totally dark and it would have been mm-hmm. a whole different kind of episode and I could see enjoying it just as much, but he didn't do that here. Right. <laughs> True. Continuing on that, Fred Bradiker says that it's, I love the episodes, definitely a comedy followed by Matt Gutkowski saying, I love everything. Everything about this episode has a good mix of genuinely creepy moments and really funny moments. So it's just interesting some people are like, it's a great comedy, I love it. And some people are like, it should have been darker. And then some people think it's a good mix both ways. I think it all starts is you have to buy what Scully's doing. You know, how Scully is yeah off the rails. 
Because that is not Dana Scully as we know her for six plus seasons. So if you're able to go with what the Dana character is doing, and it's not it's not a knock on anybody, not Jillian and not Chris or anybody. It's just you just have to be able to go with her in this instance in mm-hmm. order. Otherwise, you're not going to like it as much. I think that's interesting because she's kind of the entry point into the X-Files as the series. And like I told you, it's the thing that bothered me most about this episode is the way that she's, you know, not portrayed by Jillian Anderson necessarily, but how she's written or how that character is conveyed. But I think like looking at it that way makes a lot more sense to make the episode be more enjoyable or meaningful or something. So Chandru Ravindran says that it's the most, one of the most purely watchable episodes of the, epi- of the X-Files and has good insight into the characters and so forth. But he says that, and he talks about the imagery of Mulder and Scully shooting each other and dragging their bodies across the floor. So we have another vote for the dragging of their bodies across the floor. But he's <laughs> <laughs> very popular Christmas scene there. But he says he feels it's something of a missed opportunity when dealing with the actual ghosts. So I think that's interesting. And he says that watching Mulder trade witty one-liners with Maurice makes me feel like I'm watching a play and not a real episode of The X-Files. And then he goes into the humor sometimes, feeling a bit broad and um, some of the things we talked about with Scully and so forth. And then he says it would have been, he would have also preferred it to be scarier and more macabre, I think, rather than Uh silly. But the part about him feeling like he's watching a play and not a real episode of The X-Files, I think is interesting because I think the way those characters are done having so few of them and then the limited set and having them paired off makes it seem like a play which i I don't know what do you think about that yeah when you think about it that way that that is how a lot of plays go you know two people come out and they're talking for a while and then two others they leave two others are talking and then they mix and match and and so there is a lot of play-like imagery in this episode it works for me but mm-hmm. I can see how it might not work for someone. No. I, I think I like the play aspect, and I don't know that it if it's the idea of it. I think I really do like it overall, though, but I could see why it doesn't seem like the way that an X-Files episode is, you know, is shot and filmed and so forth. And then he says, he has a lot to say, but it's all interesting, so I'm going to read one more thing. Because he says that the biggest and most controversial issue that he has is that he dislikes the guest performances. And this is kind of a rare mention of somebody that does not like Ed Asner and Lily Tomlin's performances. And he says they're good elsewhere, but he doesn't feel like he's watching like full characters, basically. He feels like he's watching two famous actors mugging for the camera. I've heard that, I've heard that a bit before um, when we were doing the rankings for season six mm-hmm. on Facebook. That came up a lot. And it's just so not my point of view on it, you know? I think... Yeah. I can't imagine those two characters being done better. And they're they're ghost characters. I'm I'm not sure how much more we needed to know about them, you know, how much more fleshed out they could have been even though they can't be fleshed out because they're ghosts. They're ghosts. Um <laughs> For me, I think those are two of the finest performances in the run of the show for me. Yeah. But it comes back to that old thing that if something takes you out of the show, you're not going to be able to enjoy the show as much. Like, I have an example. One of many people's favorite episodes is The Unnatural. 
The Unnatural has never been one of my favorite episodes because I work in baseball and I work in journalism. And mm. when you see things that don't ring true on screen, it can take you out of what you're watching. And so, therefore, I don't like The Unnatural as much as most people do. But if that's what happens when you're watching Lily and Ed, you're never going to be able to enjoy the episode as much as some other people are. And that's okay. It's not good or bad. It's just the way it is. You know, it's that episode is not for you. That's okay. We got plenty more of them and something (laughs) is going to be for you. Right. So I just think that it's so interesting to me. It's always interesting to me how much the viewer tastes are different from each other because we all love the same show and we often all like different things about it that is so cool to me that is that is always going to be so cool to me and it's amazing how many people are passionate about the show but then whatever their the particular thing or interest or preferences you know just having discussions about that it's interesting it's just interesting to see because sometimes I'll find something that I'm like, oh, I didn't think about it that way. And then I'll find that I agree with it. And other times I'm like, how could somebody think that way? You know, but it is yeah. just that, yep. that abundance of different, you know, different items of enjoyment. It's the coolest. And it, it's a testament to how deep this show is and how, you know, how much it has going for us. If you don't like this thing, this thing is coming along and you probably will. Yeah. And then, like we're talking about, like over time, you can find something that maybe you didn't enjoy so much at one point, but either over time or at a different period in your life, it comes back in a way that you appreciate more. Yeah, like like Jeffrey Spender. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) Oh, Jeffrey Spender was so hated, was so hated back then. And now I kind of, I still don't think he was written to the maximum effectiveness that he could have been, Uh but I really appreciate him more now than I did then then. yeah so um Chandru ends with I think he would have preferred lesser known actors to play the parts and having a more serious script and so what I was going to say about that because I think that's interesting and I think if it had been a more serious script and been more on the side of the macabre and you know sort of like having a sinister vibe to it then it probably would have worked better to have lesser known actors but having it be that comedy or being like what he calls a grand production, big. You had to have big people, big actors with bigger performances to do that. So I think it just it depends on, the, I think maybe it depends on the preference for if you wanted it to be more serious or like the larger comedy. Right. Yeah. Let's scoot over and do a couple from Twitter, a few from Twitter here. Isabel says it's a favorite of hers and then she can't separate the Christmas and Halloweenness of it. So she enjoys it for both holidays, likes the black humor, and there's enough gore when they're Mulder and Scully are crawling on the floor. So once again, and she says the house is like an escape game. So that's, you know, back to what you said about Chris Carter's version of an escape game. Right. Um, and she really likes everything about it. Says it's Chris Carter at his best. And then she said, and for the keys, has Mulder stolen them? I hesitate. So always the mystery. Our Tony Black says he loves it, loves it, loves it. Every inch of it. <laughs> it's nuts, of course, but how can you not love Ed Asner and Lily Tomlin psychoanalyzing Mulder and Scully while spooking them out? It's just complete fun. So definitely on the comedy side. And then we have Carl Sweeney who says, I wish I could love this episode, but I don't. I do like it, especially the opening sequences. And he thinks it gets bogged down when Asner and Tomlin show up. So they're two opposite takes. Cortland thinks that Scully's reaction is a little extreme, so we talked about that a good bit. It hasn't diminished her enjoyment, but she said it, it 
she takes the rest of the arc and episode less seriously because of that early behavior, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah. Annie Flowers says that she is just so grateful to have a light X-Files Christmas episode to watch, and the ending is sweet. So I think that that's, that's a good take-home point, I think, having a good X-Files Christmas episode, just a, like a lighthearted one if you want it to watch. And a lot of people seem to enjoy that, whether they think it's just Chris Carter brilliance or, you know, it's silly. So did you have any other things that you wanted to talk about? I just wanted to add, and we sort of covered it already, that I think this season Chris Carter has gotten the bottle episodes down and he, he stopped writing, trying to write like Darren Morgan and Vince Gilligan and in doing so he found his own voice um, in Triangle and then here with Ghosts. I think he finally did. Oh, interesting. Okay. So before that, you didn't see him as much, before those two episodes, you didn't see him as much in his own style? I didn't, no, I didn't, yeah, I didn't think it was his own style. I thought it was Chris Star- Carter's style sort of spun through mm. doing some Vince Gilligan things or doing some Darren Morgan-esque things. And, and here, it feels more like a unique voice yeah. to me. So do you have any examples that you can think of, of when he was maybe borrowing a bit more from... Oh, I I don't like to point those. Out. Yeah, I, mean, I don't mean to be like critical, but just like the evolution but of his. I think voice. I think postmodern Prometheus is not entirely his creation, and it doesn't completely work for me because of awkward moments that come from like just it's hard to explain. Not complete confidence in what he's doing, and sort of relying on outside people or outside things to do what he wants to do. And and here and in Triangle, this is his vision and I get it. And I think it's, you know, that might just be me, <laughs> but it really feels like a different, he came into his own sort of thing to me. That's interesting. And I asked because I was curious if you were going to go back to Syzygy or one of those earlier episodes and then my next Syzygy, question would have... would have been too easy a target. That is too okay. easy a target. Well, though, because my next, my next question would have been, was it when he started writing and directing together for his episodes that he found his voice through like doing both of those things? But the, the, your, your answer answered that, the postmodern Prometheus. So. I hate to pick on that because there's a lot of things postmodern Prometheus has going for it. I just don't think it's like the complete, as complete a vision mm-hmm. of his as trying to let ghosts are. Well, that, no, I like that a lot. So that makes me want to watch, go back and kind of like watch through those and see what I notice as well. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion and comments. And Paige, where can our listeners find you online? Okay, my Twitter handle is x hyphen pay p a i. And I also do an X-Files rewatch blog with my sister called Sibling Cinema at Blogger. And we can be found with that moniker on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Pinterest. Great. And I've read a few of those blogs, too. They're very, they're interesting, but they're a lot of fun as well. So I would recommend those to any of our listeners that want Thank to, you. to find that. You're welcome. I'm Marlene MHS on Twitter and Marlene Stemmy in the X-Cast Basement Group on Facebook. We have some great thinkers in there talking about the X-Files from all different angles, um, a sample of which you have just heard. So please join us there. And in the meantime, thank you, Paige, for the great discussion. And thanks oh, to thank our listeners. Yeah, you're welcome. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. 
Have yourself a merry little Christmas and trust <laughs> no one. Elsewhere on We Made This. Observing the Pattern, a fringe podcast. Yes, and it's, I mean, it, it speaks a little bit to, you know, Walter's mindset now, which is, you know, he's, this is his Peter now. So. Yeah. That's interesting. And I think, I mean, I think the line, what, what, the, what that line is trying to kind of put across is that there may be some behavior or the way this Walter speaks that's different to Walter. Right, and I, that that was my thought too. Like maybe just the the subtle differences, you know. Young Peter, Peter notices those things, but it yeah. just it was just a weird way for young Peter to voice those thoughts. I thought, yeah. So, pick a disc. All of of all of the songs, you know, uh, not thinking about I write sins, which, like you said, I think everyone knows all the words to that song, whether they want to or not. But when um, <laughs> If I'm like, if I'm cleaning the kitchen or something and London Beckham comes on shuffle, like it amazes me, you know, and we're coming up on 15 years from when that record came out that I can just like belt out the words without even realizing that I have them like stored away somewhere in my brain. And I think that's because it, the song flows so well that it just, it sticks with you. Right in the childhood. Bit of a twist, wasn't it? Like, well, I think we're going back to it again, but like everyone knew um, she was Kim Possible. It's like, it yeah. would, it would, like, it would make sense as well because it wasn't like she was even wearing a disguise. And like the whole school knew, but it was that thing of like she can save the day by night, but couldn't ask the boy out. And, it's actually quite an original take. Even yeah. stuff like Puffy, nobody knew she was the Slayer yeah, until sure, much sure. later on. I'm glad they sort of got rid of like. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network. The Xcast and X-Files podcast was created by Tony Black and is produced and hosted by Carl Sweeney, Sarah Blair and Kurt North. You can find the podcast on Twitter at the X underscore cast, on Facebook by typing in the Xcast, and in our group, X-Files Basement, the Xcast podcast fan group, and on Instagram, the Xcast pod. Don't forget, you can support the show by becoming a member on Patreon. Our patrons get early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes chats with our hosts and a thriving community of X-Files, and other premium interviews and specials. To find out more and subscribe, you can go to patreon.com slash the Xcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the Xcast. We are also part of the We Made This Podcast Network, full of popular culture shows, including our Millennium series, The Time Is Now. You can find all of our shows at our website, wemadethispod.com, or via Twitter at WeMadeThisPod. Thanks for listening, and keep watching the skies. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.